You're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter and today we're talking about women and the environment and sustainability and gender politics inside and outside organisations. Um, my co-host Steve can't be with us today so we're an all-female lineup this side of the mic. We do however have Jim, our amazing producer, on the other side so if it all gets a bit rowdy he may well cut us off in mid-flow. You have been warned. Um, I'm joined in the Planet Pod studio today by four amazing women, all change makers, mould breakers, leaders in their field, and we're going to have a really, really interesting and fascinating discussion. Um, studies show that women are adversely affected by climate change, they're affected by pollution, by poverty particularly. So sustainability and women and politics sit really neatly together, which is why we've got this humdinger of a show for you. So just a quick introduction to my guests. I have Caroline May, who's a partner at the global law firm, Norton Rose Fulbright, where she heads up the environment planning and health and safety practice. She's an award-winning woman in her own right, as well as being a really um, strong advocate for women and the environment and all issues of helping other women up through the ranks. So, Caroline, welcome. Thank you. Um, I also have Frances Scott, um, who is the founder of 5050 Parliament, a fantastic camp campaigning group that advocates for better gender politics within Parliament. Um, she has a background in, in commercial tourism and the hotel industry, as well as being an antenatal teacher with NCT before she set up 5050. So, Frances, welcome. Hello, lovely to be here. Um, and I have Anne Johnston. Um, who's joined us all the way from Scotland. Thank you, Anne, um, who works for Malcolm Hollis, a uh, construction and um, building surveying company. So a really male-dominated industry. And she holds board-level responsibility for the environment. And she chairs UKLA, which is the UK Environmental Law Association, and is a nominated finalist for Best Women in Environment and Sustainability category in the Women in Construction and Engineering Award. So we have m multiple award winners around the table. So welcome, Anne. Thanks, Amanda. And my final guest is Jackie O'Keefe, who's a consultant in environmental um, and safety and health and safety at Norton Rose. And Jackie comes with a really wide um, spectrum of experience and insights and is here to, oh, partly to keep Caroline on the straight and narrow, I think. So Jackie, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So, as regular Planet Pod listeners will know, we usually like to kick off with um, what we call our good, the bad, and the ugly slot. And I'm going to ask our guests if they have a good, a bad, or an ugly that's really got under their skin or made them celebrate. Um, it's Jackie here. Uh, I think that the uh, London Assembly recent decision to try and make London a national park city is something to be celebrated. Um, it's had the backing of Sadiq Khan and they're trying um, to show because we've got 40% of our city is green space and they just need a bit more and I think about 2.5% of waterways so they're just looking for a bit more so that we can turn it into a national city park. It would be the first in the country and uh, I think estimates have shown that um, 
it would save the NHS £950 million because it's good for uh, your health and well-being and good for city sustainability and maybe it'll change the way people look at developing London and keeping keeping the green spaces and the blue spaces safe. That sounds really exciting. So that <clears throat> just for those people who are maybe not London-based, this is a park within the city? It's called the National Park City. So we're going to actually be the first national park which is actually a city if you see what i mean so they're trying to get it designated so this is across the whole of the city yes so this is all about all all building and all trees and all open public yes. spaces yeah that's amazing that definitely i think comes under um the heading of a good um how about you Anne? what's your good the bad and the ugly um well i uh heard a really nice story this week which i thought was really positive for lots of reasons which was the um announcement of ruth davidson and her partner that they are expecting a baby um, and I just thought it's lovely for them personally, but um, in terms of visibility and representation, having a female politician who is going to become a mother and has said, you know, I fully intend to continue with my career. I think that's great. Um, and also a same-sex couple saying, you know, this is a, this is what a family looks like. Um, Inevitably, there's been backlash, there's been a lot of reaction, but the way that Ruth deals with those things, I think, is very, um, you know, very empowering for other women to see as well. Fascinating that she felt the need to actually come out and say all of that, Mm. though, isn't it? I mean, because you can imagine a senior male politician actually coming out and saying, you know, my partner's having having a baby and it's not going to affect the way I work at all. So I think it's a really interesting, that's good, definitely good it's tinged with, you know, do we really need to be having this conversation now in 2018? But when you look at the number of, you know, Yvette Cooper being the first uh, woman who was was a, um, a cabinet minister to take maternity leave, um, you know, it's interesting that Ed Balls took paternity leave as well, but she's come out and said that when she took her second paternity, uh, maternity leave that she felt ostracised, she wasn't communicated with by civil servants and that, that she was... Um, you know, she, she was left out and, and didn't know what was going on. You know, and, and that's 2004. And since then, you can probably count on one hand the number of women that have been in that situation. Um, so, yeah, it shouldn't require comment, but it does because it still is very, very far from the norm. Yeah, Francis, this is this plays right into your patch, doesn't it? I mean, this is just another example of how you know, our representation and our parliamentary system is not equal and is, doesn't reflect what's really going on in, in, in across the country as a whole. I mean, have you got a particular good or bad or ugly story that you want to share with people? Well, yes, absolutely. You know, 50-50 Parliament, we're campaigning for better gender balance. We want women to have equal seats um, in, in the Commons and in the, the Lords because representation shapes policy and Parliament should be drawing upon the widest possible pool of talent and experience and um, women's experiences count as much as men's and obviously pregnancy and childbirth is something that really matters to me and actually probably to about 80% of women give birth so to most women it's a a crucial issue Um, and yet actually you know we've got one of the um, worst stillbirth statistics in in Europe and I've been teaching antenatal classes for 25 years I was expecting um, childbirth to get better, uh, a, a, a report was produced about 20 years ago called Changing Childbirth, uh, but in fact it hasn't really got better, it's probably got worse, and um, when you look at the makeup of Parliament, 
it's clear that most people sitting on the green benches and the red benches, this is nothing that uh, they will ever experience or go through. So um, that's why I care so much. <laughs> uh, representation shapes policy. There's tax on tampons. When Obama was asked why those taxes were passed, um, he said, well, it's because men were making the laws. Uh, but let's go to the good news. Uh, I think it's great news that we've had the unveiling of Fawcett, mm -hmm. Millicent Fawcett, mm -hmm. in uh, Parliament Square. Um, that's another key bit of representation. Obviously, she's the first woman in the square. But only uh, uh, about 2.7% um, of statue, statues are actually women. That's non-royal statues. Um, so that's a great step in the right direction. Um, but we don't just need more women's or statues of women. We need more women writing statutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah, definitely. More, sta more statues and more statutes. I'd absolutely 100% agree with that. And, uh, and, you know, it's taken how long for, for Millicent Fawcett to be there? Over a hundred years? Well, well it's taken years. forever. I mean, she's, you know, <laughs> so she's only just there. Yes. And in the hundred years that women have been able to stand, we've had 4,992 people be elected, but only 400, 489 were women. So you, women have uh, accounted for 9% of parliamentarians, well, politicians, elected politicians in that time. Um, and men still outnumber women two to one in the Commons and three to one in the Lords. The name says it all. Uh, it's Massively got to change. It has. Caroline, is there a, is there a, um, a good or a badly, bad or ugly that's underneath your skin at the moment that you want to share with everyone? Um, well, I think the good has been the move towards disposables and sustainability. Blue Planet tapped into something, the zeitgeist, um, where I think the environmental campaign... <clears throat> may have been running out of steam a little, something like Blue Planet has re-energised it and presented it in a way that is not preaching to people but actually engaging people. And I think the consequent almost effortless move towards reducing and eliminating sustainables, uh, disposables, sorry, has been very, uh, very heartening. And it's been very positive, not in a preachy way, but companies and organisations have voluntarily taken steps to minimise and try to eradicate their use of, of disposables, plastics. And I think that's a very positive movement for the way forward without as yet legislation. So I think that's something very positive. Um, on the bad side, uh, I won't mention the B word, uh, but uh, we were making very positive strides and UK PLC were making very positive strides towards leading the debate on the circular economy in Europe and I was having meetings in Brussels and we were talking and the European Union were very keen for UK PLC to lead this whole sustainability circular economy debate and I think what we must be careful of is that we don't lose that opportunity because of Brexit and don't disengage from some of these European initiatives so I don't put it in the bad stroke ugly but I think it's something we need to be careful of not to get derailed because we had a, a real opportunity to lead European policy in this area. So yeah, we I'll need to put it on the watch list, don't we? For those listeners who might not know what the circular economy is, can you just give us you know, a couple of sentences so they understand what that means? I mean, I think we probably all know, we think we know, but it'd be great to hear a kind of proper definition. Yeah, sure. The circular economy is really looking at the life cycle of the products that we use. So from the moment of design and echo design, making sure that sustainability, recycling and recoverability is thought of at the beginning. So when someone is designing a product, they have to think about the end use and the disposal, whether the product can be upcycled, recycled or reutilized. 
and that then goes through the whole life cycle of the product so that we are only producing products that are sustainable uh, and that we can reuse or dispose of safely without harming the environment. So, And then there's a whole chain of ancillary commercial initiatives that hang off that circular economy. So it's very important to our economy moving forward. It's very important to initiatives and the impact it has on developed economies is enormous when these initiatives take shape and are successful. So um, circular economy is something that we should really all be focusing on in business or in NGOs or, or anywhere really across all walks of life. It's going to be important and UK PLC was in the driving seat of that and we want to make sure that we don't slip back in any way. Yeah, vital for industry and vital for jobs. And is that something you come across, in, you know, because you're in a what is a traditionally very male sector yeah. um, and perhaps kind of, you know, building and constructions and surveying not necessarily got the best track record around sustainability <laughs> um you know is that what's what's Indeed. the feeling from where you're sitting um well the i mean it, that's absolutely right amanda the, the the track record is appalling um and the the recent the gender pay gap reports highlighted that you know blatantly um when you look at uh, the property and construction sector um they had some of the worst Statistics, um, and the the reason for that boils down to a lack of women in senior roles. That's really, um, you know, fundamentally what it's about. And and some of the justification that was given by people was a bit unfortunate. You know, it's sort of, oh, it's um, it's just because of the type of work that women do in our organisations. Um, and the, you know, the the world is literally built by men for men. Um, and that's the reason is. Francis said that the, we need proper representation because if you don't have that, you are not even seeing what the problems are. So, you know, how can you create an environment that's accessible for pregnant women, you know, people who have care responsibilities for elderly or, you know, whatever it is, if this is just not even on your radar. Um, and I, uh, you know, my, in my role at Malcolm Hollis, I'm the head of the Environment, Energy and Sustainability Service. Um, that We have 45 partners, of whom three are women, and I'm the only one that has a fee-earning role. And we, you know, we recognise that that, that that has to change. But my aspiration for my own service is that it essentially disappears. I, you know, I don't um, want to see sustainability being identified as something other in f hopefully five, ten, but certainly 25 years' time. You know, it should just be so firmly embedded in everything that we do that you don't have to say um, this is a spec for refurbishing an office and it's a green spec or this is a, you know, I'm doing this construction and I'm going to include sustainability targets. They're just there and it's what people do. Um, and, and that comes back to what Caroline was saying, because if you've got the circular economy mentality underpinning that, um, that will happen automatically because it will be there right from the inception of every project. So there's a real um, parallel between the diversity debate and women in the workplace and women in positions of power and the sustainability debate as well, yes. isn't there? I mean, it isn't just things like the, the UN report that said, you know, women are more likely to be poor, therefore more likely to be affected by climate change. Yeah. It's that position of women in roles, in organisations and in our community mm -hmm. that influences not only the control and power women have, but how we impact and relate to the environment. 
Um, I mean, at 50-50, we want women to be equally involved in all policy-making decisions. And, you know, sustainability and environmental issues are things that women care hugely about and should have equal say, um, you know, going forward into the future and sort of making the plans um, for, for the future. I think do you think, sorry, Caroline, I was going to say, do you think it's too controversial to say that women care more about this stuff than men? No, I don't think that's right, mm. actually. I don't think that's a fair um, characterisation. But I do think there's been a feminisation of the environmental debate. And I don't, can't quite put my finger on it, but the number of environmental professionals sitting around this table, and certainly in the organisations I belong to, there's a much uh, greater representation from women than men. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I do think that that is part of the mixture of feminising the environmental debate. And I know when I raise it, in business and commercial situations, it's almost an eye-rolling. Oh, it's the environment, it's a woman going on about the environment again. And the men seem to focus on the money and the women seem to focus on the environment. I can't quite marry these two things up. Mm. The planet is what we all live on, what we all depend on to live, to work, to make money. So to my mind, it's absolutely fundamental yeah. to the debate. But I think there is a way in which the two genders perceive the environmental issue. Mm. Um, and therefore that comes across as a feminization because I think women aren't necessarily ascribing a financial value to it in the yeah. same way that men possibly do and identify targets and values and profit. Women think more about the sustainability, the community uh, and, and simply lifestyle. Yes, but women need to be involved in all decision-making, don't they? Environmental and economic and foreign policy uh, because it affects us as much as everybody else. Um, but you're absolutely right, it needs to be a team it's a, a, an equally gender-balanced team that, that makes these decisions. What I was just going to say was that the, the reason why I think it is disparate is that if you look at the top of all organisations, to pick up what Anne was saying about her industry, the greater majority in the C-suite are men. Mm -hmm. And therefore you get one view interspersed by one or two lone females. And I think when we have greater representation, which I think feeds into both arguments, that's when you will have true equality in the decision-making and all the value set can be bound up and I don't think that women are not keen on making money or profit. I no. think they've not been in the positions where that's been central to their roles yes. and yeah. vice versa for the men. So it's it's a more balanced view is where we need to get to. Yeah, um, I was just going to say that the, what women's labour and the environment have in common is that they are, are not, that, that value is not captured in the way that other economic indicators are. So when we look at and we measure success and how we value, when we're saying that's a successful individual or that's a successful business, um, we are not actually uh, understanding everything that goes into that. So a, a personal example for me, and this isn't just, you know, it's, it's actually my mum and dad, but it's about childcare. You know, my, I'm in a very fortunate position that my parents help to support me in my career by helping to look after my children. And if they didn't do that, I would not be sitting here. I would not be able to do my job in the way that I do it. But there's no way of capturing their input to the economy. You know, there's what I generate. There's sort of, you know, I, there's what I earn in my salary and what fees I bring into my company. But, you know, what my mum and dad do every day is directly contributing to that. And it's the, the, you know, the natural capital approach in terms of valuing ecosystems. It's the same thing. You know, it's like, how can we look at this differently 
and how can we broaden this out yeah. and, and ascribe economic indicators to all of these different factors yes. so that we... The, the ONS is starting to quantify the unpaid, you know, the contribution of the unpaid economy and you're absolutely right that much of the work that women do is unpaid. I mean, it's not even a gender pay gap, it just isn't paid. And um, men and women, you know, perhaps need to be sharing the unpaid roles, which, as you rightly point out, very often comes down to childcare and parenting. And I think we actually need to inject the word parenting into this policy decision um, and how important uh, we, what sort of priority we put to parenting. And coming back to your point, though, about the head of corporations, absolutely, you know, boards tend to be male-dominated. But corporations don't set out to be representative, whereas Parliament is absolutely meant to be. And if it's an institution that can't or doesn't include women, which it clearly doesn't, um, then, then it needs to change. And at the last election, only 12 extra women were elected. Um, and the BBC was saying, you know, what a triumph, 208 women in, Westminster, uh, in the House of Commons. But, you know, that's a sad record. And at that rate, it's going to take 50 years to get gender balance in the major sort of legislative board in this country. Um, well, surely more than that, if we only have an election every four or five years. Well, no, no, I, I, it, we've we factored that in, given right, that okay. elections happen only five years. If it carries on at a rate of 12 per election, it'll be 50 oh, years. Too, too late for me, but possibly not for my daughters. Well, no, I mean, they'll be old and we'll be dead. I mean, so um, we can't let sure. them have to keep carrying on with this fight, which is why we want to ask women to stand. The evidence is that women need to be asked three times. So we've set up, you know, there are many routes to, to our ambition of 50-50, but it seems that the most practical route is to encourage women to stand. So we've set up a campaign called Ask Her to Stand, um, and we want everyone to invite the good, you know, inspirational women around uh, that they know. Uh, they want, we want them to sign them up to stand on the 50-50 Parliament website. And we will then send them an inspirational email and hopefully they will then sign up to stand and we will help them along the pathway to Parliament. Um, we have our Ask Her to Stand directors and team to do that. So far we've had 120 women sign up to stand. Um, if we had 117 women elected at the next, ele extra women elected, then we would have gender balance. So that's what we're hoping to do. So that's a, a call to action. Do you think that we've perhaps, going back to this, this, this debate around valuing sustainability and women's contribution and, and how we, we, we put this in commercial terms, because I think in reality, unless we can make a really strong commercial argument, it's not going to happen. It's always going to be marginalised. Do you think we've done ourselves a disservice, Caroline, by having so many women working in this field? I'm not saying that you know we want fewer women in the workplace, but do you think we've actually kind of owned the problem in a way that's allowed men not to own it or, or it's become marginalised? I don't think it's become marginalised. I think it's become feminised and there is a, there is a, a view, an academic view, that when professions in particular become feminised, uh, the remuneration goes down and it's seen as less important. Um, and I don't think it's something anybody set out to do deliberately, but it's just the way it has evolved. But I think one of the things that we've struggled with is in, in this environment in gender and I've worked in this field for 30 years now, is putting a value on environmental impact and environmental assessment and environmental enhancement. It's always put in the, in the heading of facilities management, cutting costs, having changing your light bulbs, or oh, we've saved a certain amount on our energy usage. It's not about that. And we've got to ally environmental improvement with, with the, um, the overhead, the profit, the good news story, not just the cutting overhead story. 
And I think we've struggled, GRI and others have tried to bring in indices to G- value GRI? it. GRI? Uh, the, the retail index to okay. try and bring in how, um, how you can measure and value and quantify environmental improvement. The difficulty is it's such a variegated sector. It's so difficult to try and find one metric. But I have, for example, sat in on deals and there's usually a materiality level in a deal, a big uh, mergers and acquisitions deal. And below that level, people don't care. So I've sat in meetings and the bankers have said, if it's below 100 million, it's de minimis, we don't care. And I've said, well, the environmental permit is probably about 500 pounds. But if you don't have it, you can't run this whole business. So you can't measure it in traditional terms, in traditional financial metrics. And that is where I think the environmental debate needs to, uh, needs to mature and grow. We have to be able to put it into a financial metric so that banks can understand it, investors can understand it, those who are reporting business performance can understand it and can see the value, make the direct connection between good environmental performance and higher profits. Then we've won the argument. I was just also thinking about the recent changes about air quality and the client earth cases and how, I mean, that's, that's an issue which everyone's t- talked about, and, um, but there hasn't been actually much leadership from a governmental point of view. And then you've got a, a really exciting organisation challenging the government and how those decisions about air quality, again, that's something which hasn't been measured, but how important it is for our own personal health. Um, has influenced um, developments and now influencing government policy. And now, you know, there are planning decisions being reviewed and um, just on the basis that if it goes ahead, it may adversely affect air quality. And this is something, again, which people haven't been able to measure, but of course is essential for our good health um, throughout the country. So. But particularly for children, because, yes. I mean, I, I didn't know this until very recently, and someone we're having on the, on the poll quite soon, um, uh, Michael Pinsky, who's, who's produced a, um, a, an immersive experience inside some geodesic domes where you can walk. An art from, installation. Yeah, it art sounded is, fascinating. It is amazing. You wait till you meet him. He is yeah. fabulous. But he was telling me that actually it's particularly pertinent to children because, of course, they breathe through their mouths. Yes. So they're taking in far more of the toxins. And as we repeatedly go over our pollution level targets for clean air in, 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 this, in the capital here in London, you know, it's something that we should be worried about. But can I and, just add, add it? I just want to add that the pod, of course, that was taken from London Air, um, it was illegal. People weren't allowed to walk through it because it was too toxic. <laughs> and, and so he couldn't use it in his installation, but it's what we breathe in and out every day. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just wanted to sort of reference into your, your other role, where because you, you're at um, UKLA, you yeah. know, uh, UK Environmental Law Association. Well, t- tell us a bit about the things that you're doing there and, and maybe some of the, the gender-based issues that are coming up or not and some of the things that are getting your members excited. Um, well, UKLA is a charity um, which is... Its mission is to create better law for the environment. So it's there for anyone who is affected by environmental law, which is basically everybody. Um, but most of our members are uh, professionals, they're environmental lawyers, they're consultants, they're academics. Um, UKLA, is, it's, I was talking to someone about this only last night, um, UKLA is an environment where I have never felt the, the gen- same gender issues that I have encountered everywhere else in my career. It's very supportive and very collegiate. And I think the fact that I'm you know, 
the, the, the chair, um, only the, the, the organisation is 30 years old, I'm only the second women's chair in that time, and I'm the first non-lawyer to chair. Um, but it, it was, you know, I, all people care about is how much I care about UKLA and my contribution to it. Um, and that's, you know, that's what they look at. I mean, they, obviously what's been kind of taken up most of our time recently has been Brexit. Um, we set up a, a Brexit task force. Um, we put some money towards the research last year and we produced a series of seven reports, um, which we know are being used to influence the debate at within at highest levels of government we're you know anticipating when when they eventually um get round to launching the consultation on the governance body that we'll see some of the concepts from our report in that consultation um but beyond that you know it, it takes up a it takes up so much of everyone's time and energy but there are still other things that UKLA members are concerned about we have a very active nature conservation group um, and that you know they are really concerned about the potential um, you know removal of the, the habitats and the birds directive in particular and the impact of brexit on the environment um, and circular economy is another uh, you know an another issue that comes up regularly but we're about to have our annual conference which is at the University of Canterbury um, next month um, there are you know still Spaces available if anyone would like to go. <laughs> Plug for UK. Yeah. I think what we've got here is this feeling that actually, you know, it's not just what's happening with the B word. Is we have this kind of movement that's about with the need for good legislation yeah. to support environmental, um, you know, good environmental practice. We've got a driver on business to take action and put value on this. But we've also got it links for me. It links right back into the women's agenda because this is about making sure that, you know, that we preserve and protect the the hard won rights for women that we've had through through you know the European Union and some of those policies and legislations but also giving women more of a voice but actually making that voice equal around the table so I mean I am distressed by your kind of characterization of the feminization of, of the environment Caroline because it feels to me as if that would allow people to as you've said just marginalize it put it to one side say it's women banging on so if I asked you what your real call for action would be for either business or individuals or women working in senior roles what would it be uh, in the environmental context, it would be for people to embrace the whole sustainability agenda and to make sure, as Anne says, that it's enshrined through all areas of business. It's not seen as a separate area. Let's tick the box for sustainability. Let it be behind everything we do and let there be a good commercial imperative to drive that agenda because that's the only way it's going to be accepted uh, and find its way into, into every boardroom in the UK. And do you have a call for action for women particularly? Uh, women need to just get out there, speak up, be part of the debate. And why should the feminisation of anything be seen as a derogatory principle? Some might say that it's, it's actually something that's it's rather beneficial, no beneficial and noteworthy. So I don't think we should be ashamed of it, but we need the fellas to come on and join us too. And many Absolutely. of them are. And UKLA is an organisation, as Anna said, that, that encourages that. But we need the boardrooms we need some of the uh, some of the decision makers and the leaders and in organizations where the senior men are are switched on to the debate real change happens from the top we get more women at the top we'll get more real change yeah absolutely so this is cool to for men to join us women who are at the top here because it's it's good up here the view's great caroline's really set us a um quite a, a high bar there <laughs> and encouraged men to come up and join um, join us in the, in the upper echelons of organisations where we're campaigning for change. 
Um, what would be your kind of real call to action for people, Jackie? Um, I, I think that um, uh, there's been a lack of uh, support um, by maybe in our organization by everyone to encourage women, young, particularly younger women. And I think it's also because a lot of younger women are of childbearing age and, you know, um, they've gone to have children and that's affected their careers in some instances. So somehow I think there's got to be a lot more support for women who are coming back into the job market and um, just the fact that they've actually that they have contributed to society um, because you find that men their colleagues when they come back who haven't uh, had that gap um, have advanced and it's very difficult then for women to sort of keep up in their careers and there's all sorts of things like um, looking after their children and uh, how can they advance, you know, they've got so many pressures and I think there has to be a way of supporting women, uh, particularly younger women, uh, to, to carry on, to contribute to society because, you know, it's very difficult in those situations, I think. It makes good organisational sense and in sustainability terms, it makes good sustainability sense to retain and um, reuse talent and ensure that the women you've invested in who've taken time out and sometimes men who take extended uh, paternity leave can come back and contribute at the same level so so it's it makes financial sense to do that so it's weird that an organization wouldn't do that well it's interesting because I see throughout my career that women have um, gradually left organizations because they can't keep up with the pressure and they may go and get a job that's le you know has got less hours closer to home so they can deal with the child caring responsibilities so there's a lot of um, leakage if you want to say from larger organizations and you know so you don't get big commercial organizations with a lot of women on the board unless they've um, sacrificed in some way or have got very supportive families so yeah. they can continue. It's, it's behind a lot of the gender pay gap disparities as well isn't it the fact yes. that women are not in some of those senior posts and and you know it, it, we didn't I didn't do a good the bad and the ugly but if I had done it would have been around the gender pay gap because I think it's my good would be fantastic we're asking organizations to make this stuff public um, and quite rightly they should yes. and it actually I think it should be all organizations not just those with over 250 employees but but you know the bad is some of the really shocking statistics coming out I mean particularly for things that you would think would be very female friendly type organizations so Mary Stopes for example has an enormous gender pay gap of something like 36 percent oh. and given that that is a female organization yes. dealing with female sexual health you know, they, they, they explain it away because they say a lot of the doctors and consultants are men. Um, but it's really not a fantastic role model for, for women wanting to work mm. into the, and, and the charity sector is actually not as good as one would expect, mm. given how many women there are in uh, NGAs and not-for-profits and charitable organisations. And absolutely, you know, um, the gender pay gap is a crucial issue. And it comes back to legislation. I mean, it's female MPs that had to fight long and hard, number one, for equal pay legislation. Um, that was Barbara Castle. And then, you know, more recently, Sarah Champion has had to fight hard for pay transparency. Um, and that's where women at Westminster make a difference. Uh, but uh, And in a more balanced legislature like Norway, for example, 
um, parenting becomes its parenting leave. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a shared joint responsibility. This isn't perceived as um, a woman's work and um, it allows women to continue to participate in paid employment. And as you rightly point out, you know, there is a point in a woman's uh, life perhaps where she is going to uh, have children, but so are men. And it, it, it should be, they should, this, this burden of responsibility should fall jointly on both, both genders. Um, I think it's also for women who, who have chosen not to or can't have children, there's also other issues around caring, um, and particularly perhaps for, for women who've, whose children are grown up and they then become carers for their own parents. Yes, and absolutely. So, so the whole issue of, of, of your caring responsibilities, and if you're like me, you're kind of in the sandwich generation mm. where you've got grown older children who still seem to need you quite a lot of the time, and elderly parents, you're really pulled in both directions, yeah. and, and lots of organisations and employers are not very empathetic towards women and with wider need, caring yes, needs. Yes, and it needs to be acceptable that men... Um, are sharing in this and it yes. shouldn't be yep. detrimental to their career progression um, which is of course what women experience as you keep saying that yep. women um, experience uh, the, the, the problem of, of wanting to prioritise raising children. Yeah. Um, I was going to make that exact point Francis which is that we do have shared parental leave but the uptake is something like two percent um, and it's there's legislation there, but like with a lot of legislation, unless it's backed up with money, um, it's not going to make a difference. So I think that's something that organisations can do and that women in senior roles in organisations can do is have genuinely good shared parental leave policies that encourage men to take it up because it's not going to change for women until men are routinely taking their, their yeah. share of And, and by the way, men stand to benefit. This they is do. a pleasurable part of our life experience. But I think you have to have senior men uh, encouraging younger men to take to this it. up because yes. you need the encouragement from the top because a lot of young men, you know, won't take this. Yes, but this, that, this because it's going to affect their... This um, is a social and cultural thing, yes. as you rightly point out. I mean, um, in Holland, it's fairly acceptable for men, well, parents, to work four days a week. Uh, you know, Monday is Mother's Day, Friday is Father's Day, and that leaves three days a week where women, where children are delegated elsewhere. And um, it, it's just that we need to create a society that, that reflects the importance of parenting. Um, and... And actually, to some extent, when you have a gender balanced legislature, the, this, this issue is addressed in a more holistic way. Mm. And have you a final call to action for, for, for our um, listeners? I do. Uh, and it's around, it kind of sums up a lot of what we've been saying. Britain now is a, a service economy. Um, so for most companies, the vast majority, so 90% of their costs, are their people. Um, so when we're talking about sustainability, we have legislation for energy use in buildings and things like that. But really, it's, it is well-being. We need to link these things up. We need to think about the impact of air quality on health, um, on mental health and you know, what our workplaces look like. And to realise that it's not a nice to have, that it's, it is actually affecting the bottom line because it's affecting productivity. And if we can you know, get people to understand that, then that, I think, will be the catalyst for change. I think what I love about Planet Pod is that we challenge people to try and 
take action and make change. And, you know, the reason I ask guests to do a call to action at the end is that we've, you know, everybody's got something they're passionate about and everybody's got something that they want to share. And, and there's so many things that we can do just in our everyday lives to actually um, uh, influence the way the world works and to create change around us. And, and, you know, our calls to action have included things like just stop using disposable cups. I mean, if we all just stopped tomorrow, I know we're bored of hearing about this now, but if we just stopped tomorrow, that would be 7 million cups a day not going in the bin. And we all know they're not being recycled. They're actually going to landfill. So for heaven's sake, spend three pounds, buy a keep cup and use it. And they go in the dishwasher, for goodness sake. So I'm going to bang on about a sustainability call to action and say, please, everyone, just look at your daily life. What are the two or three things you can take out of your daily routine that would make the planet um, a healthier, safer, better place for um, us and our children and our children's children? And that might be keep cups, it might be stopping using cling film, it might be um, cutting out everyday disposables, it might be walking less, more and driving less. So just somebody think about things you can do and take action. Francis, I'm pretty sure I know what your call to action is going to be, but I would love you to share it with everyone. So what are you going to ask us to do? Well, what I would love everybody to do is ask a woman to stand today. Uh, via our website, or even better, if you feel motivated, to sign up to stand. And the reason I opened saying that I love the Fawcett statue is what I love uh, is what she's carrying on her banner, which is Courage Calls. It does take courage to put your head above the parapet, but we really do want women to do that. And we want to be supporting them. We want all everybody to be supporting women in politics. And it only takes one in 100,000 women to be at Westminster for us to have parity. So it's not as if all women can be there, but we do need to find these pearls of wisdom and support them along the way to Parliament. So that's they, what I'd like you to do. They do need a lot of support, don't they? Because you do put yourself in quite a vulnerable position when you put yourself forward for office, particularly an office that is public, whether it's local government or national government, you know, and the rise of social media trolls and the aggression and the pretty nasty personal comments that many women in the last election experienced and have experienced since, I think, probably puts yes, a lot of women this, off. Yes, this is true. But as, as Hillary Clinton says, if you want to get the sexism out of politics, you have to get women into politics. And I, I just see it as our duty as citizens to be... Uh, this is a human right. Women should have equal representation. And one way or another, we should be ensuring that happens. I would redesign democracy, but that ain't going to happen quickly enough. So the solution is to ask her to stand and to support her in standing. So that's my call to action. We possibly need to redesign the building because that kind of adversarial benches you know, across the space doesn't create a collaborative environment like we've got in the Scottish Parliament, yeah, the Scottish which is Parliament circular. Is circular yeah. Now, architecture is also uh, crucial in this, that's true. But in fact, the makeup of Parliament would also change it. So if we had more women on the green benches and the red benches, um, the discussion might be slightly different. So please ask her to stand. As usual, group of women in the studio, and we've all got so much to say, we end up talking at once. So I have a huge thank you to my fantastic guests, to, to Anne, to Jackie, to Caroline, and to Francis. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you. Do get in touch at hello at theplanetpod.com or via Twitter. You can follow us at, at planet 
underscore pod, capital P, capital P. Um, visit our website. Tell us what you think. We really need to hear from you. We want to, listeners engaged and involved in, in what we're talking about. Um, thank you to our host, Breakthrough Funding, and thank you to Ackle Management and Planet Mark for bringing you Planet Pod, the podcast for everybody who cares about the planet.